לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. Welcome to another edition of Parker Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Malovitz. I'm in Park, New Jersey. I'm Park Conservative Temple Prairie Shashimim. Joining me, my good friends, Rabbi Barry J. Chesler in Solomon Schechter's Day School of Long Island. And Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanowski coming as... Clowning around. Clowning around. It's great yeah, to have you. And people say the rabbi of my synagogue is just a clown. We are recording this on Purim, so therefore... Happy post-Purim. For those of you in a walled city since the time of, Je- of Joshua, tomorrow, happy Shushan Purim. Happy, happy, what I was going to go as a Freudian slip and say, happy Pesach. But anyway, <laughs> we had a... We're, we're that would a, be Zizan Pesach. We're having a wonderful Purim and thanking everybody for being with us. We honor you. You mean so much to us. We love your comments. And, and we can't believe that we're getting... I don't know, 3,000 views. Wow. I doubt it. I've made made my porn point, all right? So I can dispense with this. Okay, so let's, we're talking about Parsha Kitisa. Kitisa, of course, you know what? I want to just put it out on the table. This is hard. It's a hard Parsha. It's an amazing Parsha. It's a difficult Parsha, okay? It starts off with a couple of loose ends. We got the you know, Machasita Cheka, we got some incense, and then we got a a, a set of uh, a, 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 a coda, a kind of passage that is a transition passage between what happens, the description of the the, the tabernacle, which occupied Truma and Tetzaveh, Truma mostly with the furniture and Tetzaveh with the clothing, and then you get this nice coda, which is, includes the follows. Ach! Et Shabto Tishmoro. Chapter 31, verse 13. Ach et Shabto Tishmoro. You should I don't know how to translate Ach. You have to, you definitely have to keep my Shabbat. I, I you can you could do a search of Ach and Nefesh, right? They, they, somehow these two words are always found together, okay? Because your soul is bound up to it. If you don't, if you violate Shabbat, Ushmartama Shabbat, right? Those who violate it will be put to death. So severe consequences for violating Shabbat. Have you ever had to answer this question as, as to why the violation of Shabbat deserves in the Bible a capital punishment? You ever you ever have to deal with that? As you know, some teenager adolescent <laughs> asking you, what you know. And this is the way the Bible is. I'm not interested. It's capital punishment if I turn on a light for Shabbat. What's going on? So I, I think one has to understand that it's treason. Yeah. That this is, it's described as an oath. We have the passage for Sharma right after the verses that you read. And this is a sign of the covenant between us and God. And then the verse that you read, the way that we know God is by observing Shabbat. And I think that in the biblical mind, if you don't observe Shabbat, 
you can't have a proper relationship with God, you're denying the core of the national project. Yeah. And um, therefore, capital punishment is appropriate because in many countries, treason is punished by death. There are certain things that uh, I'll just say say your point, Barry, in, in slightly, slightly different words. There are certain things we cannot tolerate. Um, you know, it, it's a bad thing to eat pig. It's a, you know, it's a bad thing to, to steal. Uh, the consequences of those actions are different than this one. The consequences of this, you cannot be part of this this national project. You can't be part of the covenant um, if you don't if you don't keep it. Now, of course, uh, the rabbis, generally speaking, uh, in in halacha, were like resistant to throwing around death penalties in practice all the time, um, and so it's not something that that post biblically you imagine uh, put in put into practice. But I, I the, this particular. You know, as the rabbis understand the verse, and as it is in the tabernacle context, I think that there's something, not that I want to put anyone to death, I certainly do not, but uh, there's something that is beautiful about this, this juxtaposition, which is you will build beautiful spaces in which the divine presence will dwell. You will create holy space. And that's a paradigm for lots of wonderful things that human beings will achieve, but resting is more important than achieving. Because the way the rabbis read this verse, why is it said here, is you might think that because building the tabernacle is so, 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 so important that it even supersedes the Shabbat, it doesn't, right? So better to have a world of Shabbat and no tabernacle, or at least the tabernacle deferred uh, to, to, you know, uh, you, won't, you won't meet your timetable uh, right away, um, but you, you cannot have a world of relentless achievement, 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 and no rest and reflection. Interesting. You know, last week we were talking after the events in Israel and Huara, and, and um, I came across a, a, um, a statement by Rabbi David Bigman, who's the Rosh Hashiva of Ma'aleh Gilboa, and he, he quoted a text from the Talmud relating to, you know, the, the misrepresentation of Torah, that Torah could be a poison. And, and I was looking for examples of how you know, the the teaching Torah can actually poison people, and 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 in fact, you know, I would I would put this this passage out as an example because if you read it unmediated by tradition, unmediated by experience, and unmediated by the the lived experience of Jews, you could say, well, once I have power, and if I can constitute my my state along these laws. Then I would put people to death for violating, you know, Shabbat, precisely because it's an act of treason, and 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 I would execute uh, based on it. And and that it seems to be a poisonous way of looking at. It. And, and you know, I often say to people, and I show you, it's like friends don't let friends drive drunk, right? Friends don't let friends interpret the Bible literally. Okay, you you really shouldn't. It's it's very bad, and and. Uh, and, it, and in fact, it could be it could be so poisonous to you, you know, the idea that that here it we, we we is this the kind of community that we want to establish? Not at all, you know. And none of us live in these kinds of communities, and none of us, frankly, would be around if we did, because you know, in all you know, we we, we certainly we certainly rack up a lot of um, you know sacrifice sacrifices to atone for you know, either willful or, or you know, accidental Sabbath violations. Um, but let's go to the relational aspect of it, which is, 
evoked in the next chapter, in the next paragraph. Vishamru v'nei Yisrael at Shabbat la'sot at Shabbat la'doratam berit olam. Beini uvein b'nei Yisrael oti li'olam. So we recognize that from the kiddush on Shabbat morning. I, you know what? We say it every morning, every Shabbat morning. It's such a it's such a beloved piece of text. You know, we have the beautiful melody for it, but but it it does reflect that your relationship is bound up with each other in a moment when you can consecrate rest with each other. It is a it is a sign. And you're remembering, you're remembering, you know, creation. You are testifying here. Uh, I, you know, it's always that moment. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I have this debate with people sometimes about what's your posture during the recitation of the kiddush, mm-hmm. uh, the evening kiddush and the morning kiddush. So, I, 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 my practice is I stand for both. Do you know people who sit? Yeah, I sit for both. I so sit, you for, sit for both because it's the introduction to a meal, and I don't need standing up. So, but you, I, 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 I say the, I say the uh, paragraph standing and then sit to drink. So you, said, the Torah paragraph. So right, the v'shamru in the Bayachu. I say I say the brachot. Oh, okay. So the whole kiddush, and then sit, and then sit. I stand. It's the reason for both. I stand and I make the bracha. I'll tell you why I stand because I I feel like I'm testifying. Okay, so I take the stand. And the reason why I don't sit for the bracha is because I have to get up anyway for the tilach Why? Why? Why should you sit? <laughs> well, then you should learn to skip the tilach daim too. <laughs> you get all yakish and do it beforehand. Exactly. Okay. So, or um, you can become a heretic, like okay. a, a good litvah. Well, okay. So, but but, and it's it, the, you know the, I, I have a little I have a little thing like ot he leolam. Means between me and the children of Israel, Olam. This is a sign forever. Olam, really, in biblical Hebrew, um, I won't say always, always. I could be wrong, but basically, the the meaning of Olam in biblical Hebrew is uh, eternity, not the world. Um, so, Olam means between me and Israel. This is an eternal sign that God created the world. I like my 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 non. Um, non-semantically correct, but I think kind of beautiful thing is ot hi leolam. It is a sign of eternity, not for eternity, but of eternity nice. in our temporal life. Shabbat, when which we're not achieving, not building, not cooking, not burning, not planting, we're sitting. Shabbat is like the dimension. I'll get all Heschelian and say it's the dimension of eternity within time. Very nice. Okay, so. It's important to get to the end of Vishamru, Shabbat Vayinafas, that God created the world in six days and then he rested and was restored. And this is a different kind of rest. I assume that many of us get at least some sleep during the week, but the rest of Shabbat is not a rest of sleep, which we all know is necessary and maybe more necessary than we get, but that it's a, it's a kind of rest that is supposed to restore our soul. And that's why I think it's so important and so much a part of our concept of divinity in Judaism. Nice. Well, I like the the idea that it starts with ach and it ends with nafash. And and if we had more time, we 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 do the concordance search on on all of that. But let's go to the next passage, which which 
it's okay it's heartbreaking i mean here they are they received the ten commandments they've got this beautiful set of instructions of how to keep god in their midst and what happens they see vayar ha'am ki voshesh moshe he's just taking his time they see they 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 can't wait voshesh moshe lareshet lareshet minahar he's he's not coming down they gang up on Aaron. Make us a God. And, and it's, you know, I, I'm reading this in, in, in consecutive to the chapter that we had before. The whole glory and splendor of this sanctuary, gold and everything. And, and it's like there's a there's a something presented to the imagination. And it's it's almost as if that creating a tangible object of worship is inevitable. Idolatry is inevitable. In, in, a, in, in the moment of, of experiencing the intensity of absence, you need something. So I think it, it's worth considering who the golden calf is meant to represent. Okay. And the people's concern is that Moses has disappeared. And, in a sense, what they're saying is they can't live without Moshe, which I think is the first time that they recognize that. That Moshe is indispensable to the way they see things, and if he's gone longer than he should be, they're in deep trouble. But the calf is to replace Moses, I think, in a sense, more than God. Because Moses is the one who led them out of Egypt, from their point of view. And Moses is God. And that's why they gang up on Aaron, because Aaron is definitely not Moshe. Whatever characteristics he has, he's not good enough. I'm, I'm not sure I would agree with you. I, I, I kind of... Oh, I'm sorry. I kind of want to keep God in the picture. You know, and, and literally, you know, God is a picture here. God is an image here. Or at least, you know, the the, the I have in, 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 in engraved in my mind the idea that the, the calf... Is simply the the thing that God rides on, right? So we've 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 studied too much biblical history or iconography, and so you have you know the 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 it's the seat of God's throne basically, and so they're they're not doing anything idolatrous. They're simply you know presenting the throne. God's still invisible, but it's they're not representing God, which you know that 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 could be, but they need something. They it's it's. There's something is breaking forward here, which is basic human needs. They need human beings need the tangible, and this is this is the Bible's real struggle. The Bible, the Bible has is trying to work this out through its history. You know, do people need something to hold on to? And and as my late teacher Rabbi Israel Silverman Zal said, there's a beauty to an invisible God. The beauty of having an invisible God is that. Everybody gets to perceive that God in their own way, and 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 therefore, if you if you condense God into one image, it's inevitable that human beings will will descend into 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 factions. Well, we talked about the we talked about the potential story being told out of order that that they build perhaps they build the tabernacle and become seduced by the power of the visual images. And then take it off the rails and build a golden calf, or perhaps there's no tabernacle, and the story's told out of order, and they build a golden calf, and that's why God realizes that they need something tangible, 
God, God discovers that the, that uh, the God who learns, not not the God that we we've grown up to, you know, think is a metaphysical perfection who knows everything. This God learns, and the people you know are, are needy, and so therefore gives them a better version, a, a, a safer version of the golden cap in the form of the tabernacle. Um, I, I feel like the story is, to me, the story is about um, the ability to, to handle uncertainty, or at least that's one of the things that the story is about. Uh, that, that, you know, Moshe himself, by the way, in the course of the reconciliation with God, will say, show me yourself. And God says, I can't do that. Uh, or rather, if I did that, you would die. You cannot see my face because no person can see my face and live. Both the people in the form of the calf and Moshe in the desire for a uh, clear vision of the divine, they, they kind of need and want something to be clarified, which is an impossibility, right? In, in this world, uh, the divine, which I absolutely 100% believe that there is a divine who, who, who is accessible to us in a spiritual dimension, uh, but but it'll never be one of clarity and 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 promises. And I get it, you know. It's like there was, there was a medieval statement um, uh, that that if that that uh, if I knew God, I would be God. But since I'm not God, I can't actually know. Let me ask you this question, okay? Which is, so they they make the calf, right? And they say, Elo, well, that's one version. Elo Elohecha Yisrael, this is your God. And Aaron sees it. Vayar Aaron vayiven mizbeach lifanav. He he builds an altar, and then he says, Machar. Okay, we're gonna have a festival tomorrow. So so you're Aaron, and you're going back to your tent that night, and. Like what's going through your mind? Well, this is this is exactly what you said before. Um, that that it's not like they suddenly started worshiping Baal. They're trying to worship you at Hevave, but they also want a uh, um, you know a, a, so to speak throne. So perhaps what's going on with Aharon is that he says, you know, listen, they they it's like the it's like the people in the previous administration in the United States. Like, why did you stay in this administration? You don't know what kind of bad stuff I restrained from having. You'd be you'd be very glad that I was working in the White House because all kinds of bad chaos would have been unleashed if I hadn't if I hadn't stopped it. So maybe Aaron is saying to himself something on the order of, uh, "I made the calf as the as the throne for Hashem. I have to remind them, and I have to redirect their worst impulses to remind them that, that the hug that we're going to have tomorrow is not for the calf; it's for Hashem." Yeah. Barry, you want to take on this? Or, or? Well, I. it seems that in the way that you describe it, that he's stalling for time, that he knows that Moshe is supposed to come back, and he's hoping that the people will come to their senses. But as the story unfolds, it seems, I, the expression you use, I don't know if it was before he started recording or after, is they went off the rails. This is a complete disintegration of the social unit, that the people are going to engage in behavior that, all of a sudden, their inhibitions are released, and whatever moves them, they will do, whether it's appropriate or not. And all Aaron can do is hope that Moshe will come back and will be able to restore. You know, 
This is where you need a cell phone. Aaron needed a cell phone. <laughs> Never he was born 3,000 years too early. Exactly. It's like, come down. Get down here now. It's, a, the, it's, it's everything falling out. apart. I don't want to stop it. So, you know, don't you love it when the next verse says, they get up early. You know, they, the people are so excited. They're so excited. They, 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 it's the first time in 40 days that they've had something to be excited about. And well, it's they, the first. This is their first holiday. This is their first holiday, right? No, it's their second holiday. They had Pesach. No, they didn't have Pesach. They didn't. Well, they were they were on the road. They had Pesach. <laughs> they they offer actually, bird offerings. Actually, They're having so feasts. Turn that, turn, turn that one back because that's interesting. I think it is their second holiday, but the first holiday was we got to get out of slavery. It's absolutely terrible and. That was great. And this one is, it just comes in. We're in the desert. How in the world are we supposed to have a holiday in the desert? Um, the, the leader, dear leader, seems to, to be, you know, a wall. So I think that there's a kind of, like, I, I'm not apologizing for the building of the golden calf. Terrible thing that happened. Um, but I think you can feel the anxiety of the people. By the way, if I'm not mistaken, there's 3,000 people that Moshe executes for this piece of idolatry. Uh, as, as we are reading this on Purim, we, we all know, or perhaps perhaps we don't all know, but I'll tell you if you don't know, that that the Megillah, which is this like his, you know very funny, it's like there's all kinds of aspects of it that are that are like a sexy farce and it's a satire and it's you know, all in good fun. But then at the end of the Megillah, of course, the, the Jews take retribution on their enemies and they kill, you know, 500 people in Shushan and 75,000 people throughout the kingdom of, kingdoms of Achashverosh. So if only 3,000 people of 600,000 people left Egypt, I mean, the Bible, we have a way of reading it that the numbers kind of go in one ear and out the other. We don't really pay that much of attention to the numbers. But if you just take the numbers as a baseline from which you compare compare story A to story B, 600,000 males 20 and up leave Egypt. Maybe there's 2 million people in, in this throng, not really 2 million people, but the story that is being told is, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people and 3,000 people get, get executed for the cap. It's actually kind of a tiny percentage. May, you like what's you know what's yeah. what's going on here? Except for the families Never. that lost them, <laughs> you know. It's you know. Yeah, but if, if what we're saying is, um, oh my goodness, Am Yisrael built the golden calf while still at Mount Sinai. You, maybe the story that the Torah is trying to tell us in the numbers is that a tiny fraction of Am Yisrael built the golden calf while still at Mount Sinai. Well, let's talk about that. I think I think so. It, it it's it's a rupture it's a rupture moment and and you know whether it was one person or three thousand people you know the fact that there was blood spilled on this and 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 it it almost seems that that the conflict is is leading to that that's it's the tragic outcome of this that there's blood spilled and so and then it has to move to a, to an, another a, a phase of reconciliation, which which I think is really what the second part of the parsha is all about. There's there's a way of how to take all the broken pieces here, because the golden calf episode becomes the 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 moment of fracture, the rupture, the rupture in the relationship. How do you rebuild that relationship? And so it, there's a war, there's blood spilled, there are three thousand. That memory will will last forever. 
in in the Jewish people. I mean, to this day, Yom Kippur, you know, uh, harkens back to this, and of course, the covenant of of compassion and you know forgiveness harkens back to it. Uh, and and so you know we'll we'll move to that point where where Moses has to beg God for forgiveness, and he does, and he wants God to show Himself to him. And and I hear you know the the, the passage I want to really kind of focus on is when you know after all of this Moses God says to Moses, look you know these people are just too difficult, um, and I'm I'm going to refer to chapter thirty three verse three. I'm going to take you up to the land, Eretz Zavad Chalav um, my, my Malach is going to take you, my angel. I, I just got, I'm not going to go with you. I'm not going to go with you. I'm not going to go up with you. Because you're, you're such a rotten people. Uh, I'll get so angry, I'm going to consume you in this. And, and that moment, it's, it's so interesting this is what God says to Moses. I guess it's a private communication, like Moses, your people, they're awful. I'm not going with you. And the people hear this and they get they get so upset. They they hear this and they go nuts. They go into more, they tear their clothes. They don't, they don't want to, they don't want to live like this. And 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 then fast forward. Which is go to chapter thirty-four. Um, after this, this the moment of catharsis. God says, Sorry, I'm sorry. It's uh, God, please, come and be with us. Because this is a t- this is a really difficult. No, maybe you can. You know the, the the particle key famously has like multiple multiple yeah, meanings. Yeah, go ahead. But because behold, um, and maybe the one you just read is even though. Even though, right? Okay, so God be with us, even, even though they're awful. Forgive us our iniquities, our sins and take possession of us and I, I find this this is the drama here it's it's really in 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 simpler terms it's the relationship is broken and yet we want a relationship you used the word before uh I don't remember if you used it on the call or when we were preparing you use the word fractured fractured and, and that's a that's a better word here than broken because uh like you, if you said that a relationship were really broken, you mean like it's at the end? Maybe it's, the it's fractured. It's seriously wounded. Seriously wounded. And yet, Moshe, I mean, I, I, we, we said this before, Nechaltanu, for, forgive us. Salata labonenu lechatatenu. Forgive our sins and transgressions. Unechaltanu, and take us as a possession, as a nachala. And that is just like the central part of this is that you know we still want to belong to you we fail and this is this human god is infinite and the demands of worshiping god are infinite and following god are infinite people are finite they are always going to do this in 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 you know flawed ways uh we are finite but take us as your own anyway and and the three of us of course are each of us has four four children and uh 
and many, many of our listeners will feel this too. You know, you, you love your children so much and you know that they're imperfect and you know that they're flawed and they're still your children. And so that's what Moshe is saying to God is, is still treat us this way. It, it's the picture of a religious life or the, 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 the theological picture, the spiritual picture is that God's relationship is with, with people who are not perfect. And that, and that the aspiration for perfection is really not here. It's the, it's the aspiration for just trying to be a little better, right? It's a, this relationship is a very complicated relationship. When you have the all-consuming God, who if you kind of, as we said, if you stepped over the wire on Shabbat, you could, you could suffer execution in the biblical framework, unmediated, okay? This is, this is serious business, and this relationship is serious. And so how do you live in that kind of with that kind of terror? You can't. So it's almost like saying, look, take us as we are. We are finite. We are imperfect. We are flawed. We sin. We uh we can do terrible things. So the only way to live in a broken or fractured relationship is with a constant potential for forgiveness. Um, if that's if that's a, a compelling re- reading here, that forgiveness here, I guess I would say is the proposition is that forgiveness, the possibility, and, and this is not Yom Kippur, it's Yom Purim. <laughs> you know, forgiveness is is so essential. So I don't know though that at this strata of the Bible, forgiveness is a real possibility because it seems that it's a later development of biblical thought. But it's here, but it's a but it's not forgiveness necessarily in the sense of wiping the slate clean, which is how we identify forgiveness today, right? When we leave the shul on Yom Kippur, we think we have a a white a white slate. All our sins have been wiped away, and here they're not wiped away. They still have to be reckoned with. But I want to suggest something. When you were reading the Hebrew, what struck me is the word that I don't know that we paid enough attention to before, and that's Bekirbenu. God will not be in our midst, but it doesn't mean he's going to be God. He'll be off to the side, because Moses is going to move the Oham away out of the camp, and that's where Moses will commune with God. So even though God will not be in the center of the people, which was the original plan, he'll still be with the people. Although at a little distance, at a little distance, and he has to be mediated by, by Moses, who, for all intents and purposes, is, you know, the 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 person that is most equipped to handle that. God, it's, I, want to, I want to go back the other way a little bit, though, and say to Barry, I don't, I don't, I don't entirely agree with what you said about the forgiveness thing because I there's a way I could read the story it goes like something like this. Um, God says, that's it, I've had it, I've had it, these people stink, I'm done with them, Um, I'm going to start over with you. Moses says, no, 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 don't do that. You know, remember, remember Egypt, and they'll laugh at you, and remember this covenant, and give them another chance, and God says, okay, but I'm not going to go myself, I'm going to go send an angel, and Moses says, you can't, can't do that, I really need to know who you are. And perhaps either Moshe has to remind God of who God is, or to be a little bit, maybe maybe to foreground God in this story. Maybe God has 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 led Moshe to this 
spot cleverly, planning it all out, so that Moshe will say, you know, show me your glory and teach me your ways. And God says, Adonai, Adonai el-Rachum v'chanun, who am I really? I am gracious and and Rachum merciful, Chanun gracious, El Erech tremendously patient, Rav Chesed abundantly kind, the Emet faithful, uh, etc. No say, no, doing kindness to thousand generations, No say Avon and I forgive all this sin. And let's pause a minute on how we parse the sentence. Either Moshe has induced God to remember, or God has induced Moshe to ask such that God can proclaim, ultimately, I am the God of forgiveness. And then we're able to say, okay, so you've been saying that people are amksheorah, that they're so, so stiff-necked. Even so, because you are el rachum v'chanun, you are the perfect God uh, for, for forgiving them. Now, it is true also, you use the phrase, wipe the slate clean, which obviously you have in mind the fact that the Bible text says, which means idiomatically, I will not wipe the slate clean. I will keep a punishment, but it will be a measured punishment. But the way we do it in Judaism, the way rabbinic Judaism has placed a period in the middle of a sentence, which turns will not wipe the slate clean to will indeed wipe the slate clean. Okay. But as you'll agree, that the rabbis do that, not the uh, yes, authors. Yes, that's true, but that's okay. Judaism as but opposed to I, I would offer two things here. First of all, I, I agree with what you said about God. I think God is very sharp psychologically, perhaps more so than Moses can ever be. Because I think that it's clear that God wants to get a reaction from Moshe. Moshe has to keep the people as his people. That's God's primary concern. Moshe cannot abandon the people because Mo God doesn't have a lot of other candidates here to replace him. And God, in a sense, talks too much because if he really wanted to destroy the people, then you do it. You don't talk about it. You only talk about it if you want someone to react to it. But God... But there's God, no reason. You know, that's basic. That's literary theory 101. All right. That's... I only so, react to it because God, it's like God has an intense love of the ancestors. It's like, I loved your father. Your father was such a great guy. <laughs> Abraham, you know, you, you're, you know, but your dad, your dad was great. Okay. And because of your dad, I'm going to, I'm going to keep my covenant. Right. But what is he saying? He's telling Moshe, you know what? You may think you're not so great yourself, but you have to remember you had great ancestors and they could carry you through when you have failed. I, think but I want to return to Jeremy's comment at yeah. the end for a moment. So yeah. the question then remains, what is the punishment for the golden calf? So is it just the 3,000 people that the Levites kill and the people having to drink the bitter potion of the ground-up golden calf? And I'm a little unfamiliar how you ground up gold to get dust, although you should see the movie Paint Your Wagon if you haven't. Um, but <laughs> Or is the punishment God moving outside of the people's center? And then I agree with you, there could be some forgiveness because the punishment lasts. And my understanding is that in the Bible, if there is a sin, the sin has to be expiated by punishment. And the punishment can be delayed, as we see in the Book of Kings, but it cannot be forgiven completely that comes much later. Okay, so I, we're, our time is coming to a conclusion here, but but 
I want to just kind of ask a question, which is that this this reality or this this kind of understanding of where God is is it's so different from the way the rabbis perceive it and the way we live it. You know, rabbinic Judaism already will 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 deal with the sense of absence, the divine absence, and construct an idea, I think an idea that we all live with, which is that God can be present. God is present when you study. God is, you know, God is present at, at, at points of, of transcendence, that God is present. You know, we could we could argue that even in the virtual sphere, you know, in a, in a, in a chavruta of three, you know, there's the, you know, the, the, the sense of God's presence is palpable when, when, you know, when you when you stand as we did for Kiddush, or you sit for Kiddush, you know, the moment that you make that bracha, maybe there's God present, or maybe, you know, the moment that, that the candles are lit for Shabbat, and I know many people experience this, or many of our viewers may, you know, the one moment of 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 peace that they feel, the feel the presence, and they can only identify it as, you know, God is with them, that they 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 light the candles, they wave their hands, they cover their eyes. And in that moment between the lifting of the hands, there, there's that, that just moment of peace, that moment of tranquility. Is that and, and is that our religious experience? Unlike, you know, what is here, that God is absent and fractured and ruptured and and that is Shabbat Shalom. That's the piece of Shabbat that we hope will last the next 25 hours. Indeed. That's why this is such a difficult parsha, friend. And just to add, you know, Shalom is one of the Kinuyim, one of the names of God. Indeed. Indeed. This is the way it is. Shabbat Shalom. A good way to end our time together and a wish for everybody and a thank you. Thank you to all the people that have made their 35 minutes dedicated to this conversation. We are so happy and so grateful for your time. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. And we look forward to seeing you again on the next edition of Parshatom.